0: Hi, my name is Kathy Harrelson. I'm a part of our Women in the Word teaching team, and I'm excited that I get to be here and talk about 2 Samuel chapter 7. I am genuinely incredibly excited about this passage. I was thinking recently about how my family sometimes likes to give gifts through what we call a wild goose chase. This might have been something that you do in your house by perhaps a different name. And that is when perhaps a gift is too large and you can't wrap it and put it under the tree. You wrap up a box and it has a clue in it. So the person opens that box and then figures out whatever the puzzle is goes to the place in the house where there's the next clue, where they get that clue and then go and find the gift. I remember in elementary school, I wanted a basketball goal for my birthday, and so it was hidden in my sister's closet, and I had to go on a wild goose chase to find it. Maybe sometimes you do that if it's something that you can't necessarily wrap, or sometimes we just do it my nieces and nephews because they like it. And my brother and sister-in-law used it to wrap and send their kids on a wild goose chase when they told them that they were going to go to Disney World. You couldn't wrap that. There was a trip coming up they were going to go on, and that's the way they chose to tell them that they promised that they were going to take them to Disney World. Now, as you can imagine, my brother and sister-in-law didn't just wake up that morning and think, we're going to make a promise that we're going to Disney World. There had been an immense amount of consideration and a plan in place before they made that promise. They had saved up money. They had looked at their schedules to figure out when they could get off work, when they could get off school. My sister-in-law loves Disney and all of the rules. I don't know all of them, that you get up at a certain time on a certain day and you can make a reservation for this restaurant or Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique or whatever it is. She had done and did all of that planning. So at the moment this promise was made, something had happened beforehand. There was a plan in place. And we are gonna read about a lot of really incredible promises. But behind all those promises was a plan. And there was something even better behind that plan that we are gonna look at. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. We are gonna see God's plan, our God, an eternal God, designed a beautiful plan from start to glorious finish. Read with me verses 1 through 9, and we are going to get a glimpse of what this plan is and what this plan is not. Now when the king lived in his house, that's King David, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. As we've read through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we've been watching the life of David play out, especially in 2 Samuel. There's been a whole lot of action scenes that we've been seeing, but we are gonna kind of step back from some of that action and look into some conversations and see what's been going on behind the scenes. Through this action, we've seen that David is now ruling a United Kingdom. All of the tribes are gathered together. The Ark of God, the presence of God is now in Jerusalem. There is rest from the surrounding enemies. We saw in 2 Samuel 5, David defeated the Philistines. So this is a unique, key, wonderful, important time as David is here in the United Kingdom and the anointing and the things that were to come are now come somewhat to fruition here. So David comes up with a plan. He checks with Nathan on it and they agree to this plan. It's a good course of action, but it's not God's better plan. We are introduced to Nathan. He is a prophet. He's going to have a prophetic voice throughout David's reign. We're going to see him again. And David says, hey, I'm in this temple of cedar. God's in a tent. I, I think I should build him a house. He looks around at some of the other kings and kingdoms and other places, and they would have built a nice house or temple for their God or God. So why wouldn't he have done it for his God, who is more holy and majestic than those gods. David checks with Nathan. Nathan agrees, and they say, we're going to build this house. But then God comes to Nathan and says, I have a plan. I have a very different plan, a better plan than you building me a house. God reminds David of the history of his work among his people and in David's life. Yes, God has been in a tent, but he's been with, present with moving around with his people. And that's been a good thing. God, even though he didn't have a temple, been at work in David's life. He had been protecting David. He'd been with him. He'd been defeating enemies for him. God has been present with David and with his people. And God sees this offer of a house, and he says, no. He declines David's idea He says, I haven't asked for a house. There's going to be someone that comes after you that builds a house, but it's not going to be you. And instead of you building me a house, I have a mind-blowing masterpiece. I'm going to turn the tables, and God paints this very different picture. He says, you want to build me a house, but actually, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, There's going to be kings and kingdoms that are going to come from you, and I'm going to build that. To be honest, this exchange is almost a little funny to me as I read through it, and what I mean by that is this. We've been reading through 2 Samuel, and I know because we've talked about it with each other around the tables, there's been more than one time when we've watched someone come up with and try to execute a plan, and we've thought, "Uh, what are you doing? You know, I mean, there was a flat out, they ignored God's plan of how you were supposed to bring the ark into Jerusalem at first, and there were serious consequences. I didn't understand why Abner and Joab each picked 12 people from their sides and then they just all 12 killed each other. Like, I, I don't get it. That doesn't seem wise. Or Ashael is chasing Abner and, and Abner says, please don't follow me, it's not gonna go well. And Abner chases him anyway. I mean, we've watched some plans go on in 2 Samuel and you and I have all thought, oh, I don't really know what's happening. And yet here's this plan that at least on the surface looks like a good plan, right? There's the majestic God of the universe. Let's build him a temple, right? Is it not sometimes more confusing or shocking to you when you have a good plan and God says no to you? When I have sinful plans, when I have unwise plans, I'm not surprised if I actually bother to inquire of the Lord that he says, no, God. I don't think so. This is not surprising to me. But when I have a good plan, a, a good job opportunity, a good relationship, a good place to volunteer, and God says no? To be honest, sometimes that catches me a little more off guard than when I just have an unwise sinful plan. And we want to be women who, even with our good plans, inquire of the Lord and say, God, is this good plan your idea or do you have something greater? It may not be easier and we may not know, But we also want to take our good plans, not just our unwise plans, and willingly exchange them for God's greater plans. That is incredibly significant for us. We've seen and heard a little bit about what David's plan was. We've begun to get a glimpse that God has a different plan. So with that plan in place, we are going to read some promises that God gave to David and to us. Our trustworthy God unveils a litany of promises that forever unite history, mark the present, and describe an eternal throne, king, and kingdom. What we read is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. That's what's coming. I think pretty easily most theologians and commentators would put this passage in the top 10 most significant in the Old Testament. I think for me, it's easily in my top three. And as I was falling asleep last night, thought, I think it's my favorite. Here are some of the things that I read about what we are getting ready to believe, read, because I want you to know how significant it was. One person said, it's the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. One person says, it arguably plays the most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament and shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. It's the longest recorded monologue that God gives since the days of Moses. It's 197 words, and as we're going to see here in a minute, it genuinely connects all the way back to Genesis in the beginning of our Bible, all the way to Revelation. When I started studying this passage, I had two thoughts. One was, this is absolutely amazing And the other thought was, I need about a semester to cover it. I would literally have given you 100 pages of verse sheets if I could. We got about 15 minutes. So here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're not going to do. As we look at this, and this is like Christmas for me, just to look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and see how God connects them. It's so fabulous. We are going to see, number one, I want you to make sure you get the main point. And number two, we cannot look at every place or every nuance where it's corrected, but I want to give you a taste of how these promises are referenced and seen and used throughout Scripture. So, main point and give you a taste. All right. The main point is this there's an eternal throne, king, and kingdom that is promised. There's an eternal throne, king, and kingdom that is promised. We're going to read through these verses, and I want you to note that, but before we do, we're also going to see later about how these promises are fulfilled, and I couldn't help but smile as I thought about this very moment and read part of verse 9 to David. Listen to this, and then look at the front of your notebook, and look at some of the screens around us as you think about this promise God made to David. In verse 9, And I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. We are in a Bible study talking about the great name of David, reading a promise to David about how God was going to make his name great. I kind of have chills. Okay, we're going to read verses 10 through 17, and I want you to not miss the main point about this house, this dynasty, this kingdom that is coming. It's the main point. Starting in verse 10, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 16, main point, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. There's a house, an eternal throne, king, and kingdom that is promised here. That's the main point. Now I want to give us a taste of how what is promised here actually connects back through the Old Testament, marks this point in history, and also has implications for what is to come throughout eternity. It's just a taste, but you are going to love it. Okay, pull out your verse sheet and put it right beside 2 Samuel 7, because I'm going to point out different parts in biblical history where we see references to what occurs here and where we're going to see it in the future. First, Genesis 17, verses 6 and 7. This is the Abrahamic covenant, or one place that the Abrahamic covenant is referenced, given years previously to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Okay? David is literally an ancestor of Abraham. So in this moment where David is being made king and getting ready to talk about this eternal covenant, he's actually fulfilling part of a promise and a prophecy that was made all the way back in Genesis. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Sound familiar to what we just read? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. This promise wasn't just mentioned once. It's many other places. I've chosen just one so you can see it. Genesis 35, 11, spoken to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who again is also in the lineage of David, where God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. What is promised is being fulfilled and is connecting back, to what happened in Genesis. Okay, mark that. It wasn't just in Genesis that this promise is significant and connected. It's connected moving forward throughout the entire New Testament. There are references back, imagery, significant things that mark how significant this promise was. Look in verse chapter 89 of Psalm, verses three and four. This promise is going to be repeated, and in 2 Samuel 7, the word covenant isn't used in reference to it, but it is here in Psalm 89, so we're very comfortable calling it a covenant. "'You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. What was promised is repeated.' And this was really shocking to me as I looked through the rest of the New Testament. I'm confident I've not even read all the verses in the New Testament that reference back to this. There are that many. But it was so significant because even though the kingdom is united now, they're going to, because of their sin and disobedience, be punished, and they're going to be broken up and exiled. And one of the things they wonder and talk about was, but what about this promise that was made? We're not there anymore. We're in another kingdom. And guess what multiple times the prophets use and reference during this time of exile to give them hope. 2 Samuel 7. Read with me on your verse sheet in Amos 9, verses 11 and 15, one of the many places it references back. And that day I will raise up the booth of David, meaning I'm going back to that promise that I made in 2 Samuel 7. I'm going back to the booth of David that has fallen, and I'm gonna repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. 2 Samuel 7 is a beacon of hope throughout the Old Testament. Okay, marker one. Marker two I want us to look at is this. In the near future... Shortly after David died, David's son Solomon fulfilled some of the promises about the dynasty. So those in the Old Testament, remembering back on this, would have seen and had this promise fulfilled to look back on. So we need to mark it. Read with me again verses 12 and 13 in 2 Samuel 7, and then we're going to compare it to what happens in 1 Kings 18 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. That's Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon, the one who's going to build the house. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at how what I just said in connecting Solomon's name here, we're told in First King happens. And I love how many times the phrase, promises fulfilled, is used. Listen to this. Solomon is speaking. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Where it was in your, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Remember, we talked about it being a good plan. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born... To you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled His promise that He made. Some of the promises in Second Samuel were fulfilled shortly after David's death. For I've risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord the God of Israel, and there I've provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Some of the promises in 2 Samuel have been fulfilled in the near future after David's death. However, this is getting to the best part. It's not just the near future. We get to look back on this, but in the distant future, generations after this promise was made, we see Jesus. In the distant future, God fulfilled multiple promises through the birth of his son, Jesus. Look at your verse sheet. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We've gotten to Jesus, tracking back to who? David, tracking back to who? Where did we go in Genesis? Abraham. It's all the way connected back. There is unity in some of these promises. And then in Luke 1, 31 to 33, and I just had never really meditated back on the fact that when we hear the Christmas story read, often in December, it includes reference to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Look at the language we're getting ready to see. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus fulfills some of the promises i got to tell you there are so many foundational major new testament teachings about jesus mentioned in second Samuel 7. this is what kept me up a couple nights ago as i was reading them and thinking how do i not include these on the verse sheet but i would have afraid you would be mad at me if i included more verses so there are so many key things we see here jesus is the son of david he's the son of god there's a father-son reference in second Samuel 7. He's the possessor of an eternal throne. There are actual New Testament references that use this language. He's the builder of God's house. Jesus and who he is and how we see him in the New Testament is clearly referenced here in 2 Samuel 7. However, it doesn't stop there. It's not just the birth of Jesus that is a fulfillment of what we see in 2 Samuel 7. These promises throw through the New Testament and all of eternity. I had never thought about, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council and how it referenced back to the Davidic Covenant. The Jerusalem Council was a very significant marker for the early New Testament church. A lot of the elders, disciples, apostles, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, all gather in Acts chapter 15, and there's a discussion about how do Gentiles, how do non-Jews become a part of the kingdom? How are non-Jews brought into relationship with Jesus? How are they a part of this? And there's a discussion, well, do they need to become Jews first and do some of the Mosaic law and then come to Christ? And the decision is made, no, they do not. It is simply faith in Jesus, whether you were born a Jew or a Gentile, that saves you and builds this relationship. Okay, we're going to read Acts 15, 14 through 18. Do you know what verse is referenced as they talk about it? Amos chapter 9, which we just read, which points back to what? 2 Samuel 7. Watch Amos chapter 9 be referenced here in this significant theological moment in the New Testament church. who makes these things known from of old. And this promise continues on through the New Testament all the way to Revelation, pointing us to eternity in Revelation 11:15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and We get to reflect reflect on promises that God has fulfilled. We get to look back at what he did for David. We get to look back at what he did for Jesus. And that is incredibly significant for us. I do not think it is easy to walk through life. Things are hard. And you'll note that often in our Women in the Word questions, we will have something that references, how have you seen God at work? What has God done? How have you seen a promise? Where have you seen the character of God? We do that for a variety of reasons, but one of them is we want to build your confidence in who God is. David could perhaps see some promises being fulfilled in his life, but we can see even more of 2 Samuel 7 fulfilled as we look back. We can reflect on the promises of God and see some that have been fulfilled because We can and must and need to cling to God's promises as we live now and as we look toward our future in heaven. I don't think clinging to God's promises is easy. That's not the point here. I actually think it's kind of hard. And to look back on promises that have been fulfilled so that you know that in the moment that you're wondering, what if or how can I or what's going to, you have a guaranteed hope to cling to. That is a gift that we are given because we know God's promises are true for a variety of reasons, but including we have seen some fulfilled. There's not just a promise and behind it a plan. There is even something more that we can see as we study this passage. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it kind of humorous Maybe it tells you something about my sense of humor. When I look at what advertisers, like, on the Internet or social media, like, think I will like, you know, sometimes I'm like, now, why did you show me that ad? Like, what in your algorithm has shown that? Or, like, on Instagram, it'll, like, show a video or a post it thinks I would like. Recently, it's been showing me cheerleading videos. I don't know why. (laughs) And it's been showing me... Steve Harvey videos, who I'm sure is a nice guy, but I don't know what in their algorithm has decided that I need cheerleading videos and Steve Harvey videos. But shortly after Christmas, they showed me some, and I actually don't really watch that many of them, but they showed me some that I thought were kind of fun. It was after Christmas, and someone in the room had set up a video camera because they were giving someone they loved a gift that either that person was really going to like or was going to be a big surprise to them. And so it was interesting to watch these videos, and there was usually a pattern. You could tell the excitement in the background of the person who had been giving it, and then you see these people opening a present, and they almost stare at this present like, like, is this real? Like, am I, am I seeing this correctly? You know, the concert ticket, the promise of a trip, the whatever the item was that they didn't think they were going to give. And then here's what happened. They took their eyes from the gift and they looked up at the person that gave it to them. And their eyes often were filled with tears or a big smile because they knew behind the gift was what? A person. A person who knew them and loved them and valued them and was kind to them and had sacrificed for them. Much like when my brother and sister-in-law made a promise to their kids to go to Disney, they'd already had a plan. But what started that? It was the people behind them that started the plan that led to the promise. The astonished servant, David, is getting ready to stare at our unmatched God, for he is the one behind the plan and the one behind the promises. I'm gonna read verses 18 through 29, and I'd like to ask you to do one of two things. As I read it, either make mental note or jot down things that are, you can think about the promises, but think about the things relating to the person. Who is God as you listen to this? Or if you want to just close your eyes and listen in a spirit of praise, as if I'm reading a psalm, you can do that as well. But I'd like for us to take a look up for a minute. Look up from the promises, look up from the plan, and let's look at the person behind it. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, "'Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? "'You've brought me thus far. "'And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. "'You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come.' And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are, a, are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all we have heard with our ears. And who was like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. The greatness and the glory of God take center stage because there is no one like him. I love verse 22. It says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. O Lord God, the phrase about that sovereign God is mentioned multiple times. There's only one person who can guarantee something for all eternity, and that is whoever it is that has the most power and is in control. Otherwise, you can't guarantee that something's going to happen forever. Only one person can, and that is the sovereign God. I was talking, FaceTiming uh, recently to my 10-year-old niece, the youngest of my brother's three. Her name's Alyssa. We actually FaceTimed for quite a while that evening. Her parents were gone. Her siblings were doing something to, um, something else. And so Alyssa and I FaceTimed over her dinner. We chatted about Girl Scout cookies and her favorite Christmas present, which is a harmonica, by the way. After she finished eating, she was doing some of her chores in the kitchen behind the sink, and so she puts the device there, and we FaceTime through that. And at some point, I said, hey, Liz, weren't y'all thinking about or wanting to go to Disney again? Did y'all, did y'all make that plan? And she said, well, I don't know. I think my parents are thinking about it. They're trying to save up and see if they can afford it. And so then I begin to joke with her and say, so are you going to get a job so you can pay? And she jokes back, I'm just 10. I can't get a job. So we laugh about this. Underneath what Alyssa was saying, though she didn't know it, was something significant. Was She was saying, my parents don't have all power. My parents don't have all resources. They may have an idea. They may want us to go to Disney, but I'm not sure if we're going to go to Disney. She knew theologically that her parents don't own everything. The God who made this promise does. Whatever he wants. Whatever he's promised, there's a guarantee he's going to happen because he is the great and the only one who can. As we continue on, we see in verse 21, I love this too, because of your promise and according to your heart, the kind good heart of God provides and cares for David and all his people. It's only good news that there's a sovereign person in control if that person is good and is going to do good things. If he's not, we should be worried, but we don't need to be. I thought about a million things in this passage that, to me, show God kindness, so I'm just going to pick one because it was unique for me. I know that we've read through this, and we've probably talked in your groups about how trustworthy God is and how he's a trustworthy promise keeper, and he is, but I began to think the kindness of God that he actually makes promises in the first place, meaning he could have done it everything we've talked about, and just not told us. He could have had Abraham, and then David, and then David's son Solomon, could have built a temple, and then Jesus could have come, and there could be an eternal king. He could have done it all, but not promised it. And I've several times, and I can't emotionally do it for very long, but I've thought, what would today be like if I didn't have the promises of God? And it's literally caused me fear. Something I think God is very kind in is that he makes a promise at all. The kind, good heart of God, I know it's hard to cling to them. I'm there with you. But can you imagine a day if you didn't have the promises to even go to? That is our God. Verse 23, although I think is very significant because it mentions the word redeem twice talking about God redeeming his people who were enslaved in Egypt, God the Redeemer continues his purposeful plan to rescue and save his people through Jesus. You know, Jesus could have a throne and he could be a king, but only righteous people are allowed into the kingdom. And hidden underneath all this, hidden underneath all this plan and all this eternity, there's only one way these promises are for us. And that is if there was a redeemer. Only perfect people get to go into the kingdom. And if God doesn't send a savior to die on the cross for sins and be raised again and to give his righteousness to anyone who believes, we could read these promises, but they would not be for us. Without a redeemer, these promises don't mean much to us. There is a redeemer standing behind all these promises, knowing what the cost is to give the gift, to give the promise and to keep it. There's a cost. And he knows what it is, even years before Jesus is born. Don't look at the promises and leave today and miss the person behind them. Look up for a minute from the plan, look up for a minute from the promise, and look at the one who gave it. Focus on your glorious God because that is what David does in response to the promises and the plan that have been given. In addition, he responds, David, the man after God in the heart, responds to our Lord God with humility, awe, and gratitude. Verse 18, what's the first thing David said? I mean, he's the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is there. They're in Jerusalem. The enemies have been defeated. If anyone were to not be humble, certainly it would be him. And yet, what does he say? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David acknowledges his humble position. We look at these promises, and I think, I certainly don't deserve them. And I love you, but you don't either. We all have an opportunity to stand and say, Who am I that God would choose to make a promise in 2 Samuel 7? that would have implications for me. Not only that, but David recounts the faithful activity of God. As I mentioned in verse 23, he talks about God's faithfulness in bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And as I thought about this, I thought, yes, we need to talk about God's faithfulness and what he's done, and we do. But oftentimes I think about it through my life, and I should. But David's here not just talking about what david's done for him he's talking about what he's done for other people you get to recount the faithful activity of god to the women who are sitting around the table to your family to your friends we can recount the faithful activity of god to david and solomon we're not just limited to looking back at what god has done for us individually and then david repeats and he prays god's promises We've seen 2 Samuel 7 repeated throughout the scriptures, and David does it right here. I love it. Basically, what he asks for is for God to do what he said he was going to do. He just takes the promises he has, and he prays them back to the Lord. Look at what he does in verse 25. Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. He just repeats and prays what God had said he was going to do. Verse 26, And the house of your servant David will be established before you. He repeats what God said he was going to do. We, I need to do that. You need to, we need to do that. We need to go to the word and say, God, you have said this. I'm just going to say it out loud. Verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. God's promised. God's promised. And David asks him to do what he said he was going to do. And throughout this psalm, psalm, it does feel like a psalm, um, but it's here in 2 Samuel 7, David says so many times things that are full of gratitude, that are full of awe, that are full of praise. He, in verse 26, just one place, and your name will be magnified forever. In response to this was David in awe praising the one behind the promise, behind the plan, the person. He expresses awe and gratitude to God for who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to do for you, for you, but not just you. Part of the awe is that he does it for all his people. David has gone through a lot to get to this point. We've seen a lot of action scenes in 2 Samuel, but we stop for a minute, and we get a glimpse of a lengthy conversation, a glimpse behind the curtain, as to what's David's thinking, but even more importantly, what God is thinking. And David stands in awe. Hard times are to come. More challenges are going to come. We're going to read them in Second Samuel. But this is a moment that marks the present for David and forever describes eternity. And to be honest, it does for us too. For like we read in Acts 15, anyone who has faith in Jesus is invited to be a part of an eternal kingdom that they don't deserve. A Redeemer has come with a kind heart, and the only one who can guarantee that his word will 100% be kept is the one with all the power. And the one with all the power has said so. So we can bank on it. It's pretty good news, right? Praise God. Let me pray. Father, we sit here humbled like David. We acknowledge none of us in the room deserve anything that was just promised, and we are in awe. We recount your faithful activity in our lives, God, to us around the table, to the women who shared today something good that you had done. And we also recount your faithful activity to David. You were so faithful to him, and we are so grateful that your steadfast love didn't depart from him any more than it departs from us. God, we ask you to do these things. You have made promises here in 2 Samuel 7 that are to continue forever, for Jesus to be king on a throne forever. And your word is also promised that if we believe, we get to be a part of that kingdom. So we ask for you to do that, and we say that out loud because it is true, because you have said it Oh, Lord God, there is no one like you. You are full of kindness. You are full of mercy. You are a redeemer. We are in awe. We step outside and look behind the promises in the plane, and we see an unmatched God. And wow, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name.